0: Now we've been in the book of Hebrews, and the question it asks is, is Christ enough? And of course, the answer is an overwhelming yes. He's way more than enough. He's more than the angels. He's more than the Jewish tradition. He is better than anything you can imagine. Last week, Brad took us through the first part of Hebrews 4 talking about the rest. It's actually God's rest that he provides for us. And he gave a definition that I thought was was good. He said it's the active, ongoing participation in the peace of God made available to all true believers. Now I have just one goal this morning. And what my goal is, is that I want you to consider how you might experience that rest that Jesus offers and that you might experience it right now. In Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus gives us this invitation to his rest. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble or lowly, Of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. You know, this is one of the few places where Jesus actually describes his heart, that part of him. And he says, I'm gentle. Now, God is all powerful for sure, but the gentleness of Jesus is that power completely under control. And then he says, I'm humble or lowly. And that means that he is approachable. You don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to have some other mediator to go through. You can go directly to him. That is his heart for us. That's who he is. Dane Ortland is a pastor at Naperville Presbyterian Church in Illinois. And he wrote a book last year called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I highly recommend that book. I want to read just one paragraph from his first chapter. He says, We are not focusing centrally on what Christ has done, in this book that is. We are considering who Christ is. The two matters are bound up together and indeed interdependent, but they are also distinct. The gospel offers us not only legal exoneration, which is a precious truth, but it also sweeps us into Christ's very heart. Now, you might know that Christ died and rose again on your behalf to rinse you clean from all your sin. But do you know his deepest heart for you? Do you live with the awareness that not only of his atoning work for your sinfulness, but also his longing heart in spite of your sinfulness? End quote. Our passage this morning is Hebrews 4 11 through 13. Now when I study, I use various translations, I'm kind of an NASB guy, but I sometimes really like the Amplified, and so I'm going to read it out of the Amplified uh, version, Hebrews 4, through 13. Let us therefore be zealous and exert ourselves and strive diligently to enter that rest of God, to know and experience it for ourselves that no one may fall or perish by the same kind of unbelief and disobedience into which those in the wilderness fell. For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energizing, and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, the soul, and the immortal spirit, and joints and marrow of the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of our heart. And not a creature exists that is concealed from his sight, but all things are open and exposed, naked and defenseless to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now Hebrews is written to true believers. What is a true believer? He hears the gospel, the good news, responds to it, You have to acknowledge your personal sin and your total depravity as it relates to salvation. There needs to be confession and repentance. You can't just raise your hand and walk the aisle and think I'm going to have my free ticket to heaven. Romans defines justification as reckoned righteous because of of grace. We're considered or counted. God's righteousness through Christ was imputed to us not infused little by little. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, for his glory alone. When you really understand the gospel, it is scandalous. Why is it that the thief on the cross, dying for sins that he'd committed, gets to be in glory with Christ from that day on? That's a scandal. Those of you who know me very well If you have to talk about the gospel in relation to me, it is also scandalous. Now, we need the real gospel every single day. It's not just for uh, leading someone to the Lord. I heard this analogy in a sermon not too long ago about an airplane. An airplane takes off from earth and it flies for a while and then lands in heaven. We often think that it's the gospel that gets that airplane into the air. And then once we're in the air, we have sanctification, we have our ministry, our good morality, we do things the way we're supposed to, and that keeps us in the air, and then we land in heaven. Not so. We need that gospel every single day. And if if an apostle would come back, Galatians says, or an angel from heaven and preach a different gospel, well, Galatians says, let them be accursed. We need the gospel every day, for real spiritual growth and intimacy with the Lord. We need to know where we stand. We need the gospel every day in order to live rightly, to do good works out of thankfulness, not in order to obtain merit. So these verses in Hebrews that we're considering are for real believers. Are you a true believer? Do you trust completely in the Savior's work, his finished work on the cross? Or is there something within yourself that you're trusting, your talents, your ministry, your morality. If you are a true believer, then the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives inside of you 24-7. That is such an amazing truth. Uh, We just really can't wrap our heads around it. We'll, We'll talk about that more in a little bit. have another question for you. Do you want to live now in his rest? in his peace. And live well, do you want to finish well? Do you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? Some people don't finish well. Solomon did not finish well. Ravi Zacharias last year did not finish well. The Israelites as a whole did not finish well. They failed to enter God's rest. Now, our passage, the writer of Hebrews is asking us to be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same examples of disobedience. So how can we be diligent to experience that rest so that we can live and end well? Well, the answer is the Word of God. If you look in our passage, it says for, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So, what is the Word of God? My list, I've got four things here, certainly not exhaustive. The first thing is the creation is the Word of God. The written Word is the Word of God. The people this book was written to would have had the Old Testament. Now we have both Testaments today. The Living Word, Jesus, he is the Word of God. His rec- he had just recently lived when the Hebrews received this. So it's everything that Jesus said and everything that he did. The fourth thing on my list that is the Word of God is the Holy Spirit who indwells all true believers, indwells you and me. Now, this is the word of God that we might often overlook. Have you ever envied those who were physically alive when Jesus was on the earth, rubbing shoulders with him? I have. But we have his spirit living in us at all times, 24-7. We have it a lot better. John 16 says, But now I'm going, Jesus says, I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the one called alongside of, shall not come to you. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And then John 14 And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. We'll come back and consider in a little more depth the Holy Spirit as God's word inside of us in just a moment. The text says that the word of God is active and alive. Moses received what they called living oracles, as Acts tells us. In First Thessalonians, it says the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. And in another place, it says his word will not return void. So let's consider these four things on my list, four things that the word of God is. First one is creation. We're going to be in Psalm 19 just a little bit. Listen to Psalm 19, the first four verses. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. But there's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line or their message has gone out through all all of the earth and their utterance to the end of the world. So without saying a word, creation shouts out, God's word. I would ask you just to work at taking creation in every day. I'm sure many of us have noticed the beautiful fall colors on the trees in in Nebraska. Look at those, praise God, speak it back to him, tell him how awesome his creation is. We had the privilege this last spring to spend 26 days on an RV caravan in the Rockies. Our favorite place was the Grand Tetons. You cannot look at those beautiful mountains without just hearing God's word saying, I am. I would also encourage you to spend some time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes gives us permission to be human and to see what it's like to live under the sun, to enjoy family and friends and the work that God has allowed you to do to eat, drink, and be merry. The second thing on our list is the written word. It's always a cross-cultural experience when we go to the word because it was written so long ago. I heard an analogy recently that made me kind of laugh, but I thought it was interesting. Let's say you've never been to Paris before. And you take a plane, you land in Paris, you get your luggage and you look for a cab. And the first thing you ask is, where is the closest McDonald's? Now, the only reason I can think of that a person would look for McDonald's in Paris is because they were unwilling to consider their awesome surroundings, the uniqueness and beauty of that city, and of course, the great restaurants that are there. We need to consider the written word as the literary masterpiece that it is. We're not to expect that it's going to answer our short, cultural, soundbite-type questions in the way that we want them answered. That means that we need to consider the time and place it was written, to whom it was written. We consider the genre of each of its many parts. And in doing so, we never forget that it's all God-breathed and for our instruction in righteousness and living a life of intimacy with God. Now back to the other part of Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. It describes the, the written word, Describe something about it, and then a benefit that we have from it. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. We'll talk about the fear of the Lord in a minute as well. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. There's duty and danger, and in keeping them there is great reward. We need to study to show ourselves approved. I looked up the word doctrine, and it it means instruction or teaching. So what do we study? We study the written word. Yes, of course we do. This is faith Bible church. But in some ways, studying is the relatively easy part. It's much easier to study and understand biblical truth than it is to live that truth out in our lives. It's much easier to know about Christ than it is to know him. Nevertheless, don't hear me wrong, we do need people who know the original languages, absolutely. We need people that know the historical theologies and history itself. It's imperative. I'm certainly not minimizing that kind of study at all. The Word says to study to show yourselves approved. However, listen up. You don't have to actually apply biblical knowledge to your life in order to appear spiritual. You can have a couple PhDs, know Greek and Hebrew backwards and forwards. You can understand details of various theologies and know church history thoroughly. You can be the author of heavy theology books and be a capable professor. However, you can do all of that and merely appear spiritual. You may know more about Jesus and yet not really know him well, or in some cases, not even at all. Can you see how very dangerous that can be? It goes without saying that pride, camouflaged as pseudo-spirituality, is often the result. Knowing the truth, teaching it, and holding to sound doctrine can even become an idol in and of itself. John 5, 39, 40, listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And you're right, in these, they bear witness of me. Yet, you are unwilling to come to me that you might actually have life. Applying the truth we already know. Well, could that be a whole lot more valuable than learning more truth? And I'm not against learning more truth. But if you and I applied the truth that we know already and lived it out in our lives, wouldn't that be a worthy effort for the rest of our lives? So where are you on this spectrum? Do you get really excited about learning more biblical truth and correct theology? And that's okay. Or are you more driven, though, to apply what you already know? Are you sincerely interested in knowing Christ? Do you long to listen to him through creation, the written word, the living word, and the Holy Spirit? It's a lot easier to know about him than it is to know him. Okay, the next thing on our list, the living word, Jesus. What is truth? Well, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is Jesus. The word is Jesus. Everything he said and everything that he did. Makes me think of John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. I love that passage. They probably set her up, and they bring her right from the bed of adultery out into the city square. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, What shall we do with her? The Old Testament says that stoner. What I love about it is Jesus doesn't say anything right away. What's he do? He stoops down and starts writing in the sand. We don't know what he was writing, but maybe he was listing the sins of the people that were standing there with the stones ready to throw because one by one, they left. Biblical truth, perfect theology is all about Jesus. Where is Jesus now, right now, as the living word? Well, he's in us. The the phrase in Christ is used often in scripture. We are baptized into Christ. We have received the Holy Spirit into us. That's where Jesus resides right now, if you're a true believer. So we need to listen to him. And listening to the word of God, the Holy Spirit within us, is not cross-cultural. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit speaks to us today, right now, in the midst of our specific affliction, in the midst of our specific sin, and yes, in the midst of our crazy, mixed-up culture. Now, there are dangers. If you say to me, the Holy Spirit told me to leave my wife, or the Holy Spirit told me it's okay to cheat on my employer, well, I'd say you're not listening to what uh, the Word of God says through the Holy Spirit in you. You're listening to what you want to Believe. Remember, John 16 said, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will only lead you and guide you into truth, into sound doctrine. However, just because there is the possibility of error or distortion, we must not minimize the Word of God within us, the indwelling Holy Spirit. If we fear God, We will have a relationship with him, not a formula by which we can rationalize and manipulate the system. Okay, we just mentioned the fear of God. What does it mean to fear him? In one of the leaflets of my Bible, I have this definition. To fear the Lord is to have a submissive posture of a servant exalting his master. He's God, I'm not. He created everything out of nothing. None of us can create life. We can only manipulate it. God is in heaven. We are on the earth. God sees everything at the same time perfectly from above. We see things under the sun, as Ecclesiastes tells us, or through a dim mirror. We are products of our culture and environment, but God transcends all time and all culture. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To fear God is the opposite of what our culture says today as, I have my truth and you have your truth. To fear God is the opposite of saying, well, I did it my way. Or how can it be wrong when it feels so right? Lyrics to a couple songs. Remember, the word of God does its work in believers. He promises, his promises are for all believers, true believers, who fear him. Psalm 103 is one of my favorite psalms. I've had that uh, committed to memory. Uh, I don't know if I can recite the whole thing now. But in verse 10, just listen to a couple verses here. Psalm 103, I think it's verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Praise the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who, what, fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I love this. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He knows, he's mindful that we are but dust. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Now, I had a mentor for about 30 years. I learned so much from him, I'm thankful. My Bible has notes from his messages and classes. However, several years ago, he left by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as the way he understood salvation. He came to a very different understanding of the written word and committed his life to that understanding and to that tradition. Needless to say, his leaving the gospel through me and others for a loop. He and I met together several times, and we corresponded some. Eventually, he accused me of believing what I wanted to believe or what I felt like believing. He even labeled me an existentialist, one who believes only what suits him. He did give me a challenge, however. <clears throat> he said, Gordon, what is your interpretive authority. How do you decide what is truth? Man, that was a great challenge. I'm thankful to him and to God for challenging me this way. It took me quite a while to think through it. Why do I believe what I believe? What do I have at my disposal that I look, at, look to as the authoritative word of God? Well, I look to creation. It's obvious that there's a God. I look to the written word and logically conclude that that masterpiece cannot possibly be man-made. I look to believers who have gone before me and who have studied like I never could. I love to read old books, the Puritans and C.S. Lewis, to mention just a few. I look to sound doctrine and theologies that are based on the written word. I look to sound and consistent hermeneutics. I love biographies, especially older ones. I look to the living word, I look to Jesus, and the reality of the historic resurrection takes more faith to believe that Christ did not raise from the dead. What I didn't know that I was looking to is the living word of God within me, the Holy Spirit. I was looking to him, but I really hadn't consciously thought of that. To say that I find truth from the Holy Spirit within me, well, that somehow seemed kind of subjective. And my former mentor was confirming that by suggesting it wasn't the Holy Spirit, but simply what I wanted to believe. But God, the Holy Spirit, is not subjective. He's a person. So I listen to him, always comparing what I hear to what is written and to what I have come to see as sound doctrine, always remembering to fear him as I do this. He's in heaven, seeing everything at the same time, missing nothing. I ask him, Is this you speaking truth to me, Lord? Or is this just something I want to believe? He answers often with the written word itself, bringing to mind what I know or what I read. He brings to my mind comforting words and sound doctrine. I often hear him say, I love you and I will never forsake you. Sometimes he says, get with it, Gordon, Too all kinds of things he can say to me. I am much more my own critic than any mentor ever could be, or anyone else could ever be my critic. So my interpretive authority is creation, the written word, the life of Jesus, and the life of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who lives within me and guides me to all truth. So as I worked to the, through the question, what is your interpretive authority, I was able to be certain that each of us is made right with God by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, dying once for all, making full atonement for all our past, present, and future sin. Amen. My relationship with God through the Holy Spirit within me shouts out the truths of Scripture, affirming that they are true. Okay, now back to our text. It says it's like a double-edged sword, extremely sharp. I think of surgery, all four things here, everything about us and how we respond. God exposes, like a surgeon does, everything about us, how we respond to God, and how we respond to the world. What does this piercing do? It says dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The Word of God helps us understand that we're made up of various parts, and yet we're mysteriously one. It says dividing them, but why? So we can better understand the gospel and our present life in Christ and our future destination. I found this short quote from Dr. Sam Storms. He's a Dallas grad. I think he sums up very well how the scripture describes Describes our various parts. So he says, The soul is the whole immaterial being of a man or a woman. When the soul engages with God, it is frequent, frequently spoken of as the spirit. But on several occasions, the soul itself engages, communes with, and worships and loves God. When the soul is viewed in its capacity to think and reason, it is called the mind. When the soul functions in its volitional capacity, or its power to make choices, it's often called the will. When the soul feels, experiences intense passion or longings, it is often called affections or emotions, or more vividly the kidneys or bowels of compassion. And when the soul is spoken of comprehensively, inclusive of all these things, it is frequently called the heart. So the Word of God helps us to distinguish between the aspects of our wonderfully made and yet mysteriously mysterious selves. Our soul, breath, heart, mind, if you look up the word, uh, the heart is the whole person, we say. We say he or she has a great heart. We're talking about that whole person, what they basically are deep down inside, perhaps the real person. Hebrews says that the word of God exposes our true heart. What makes you tick? What do you actually trust in to be made right with God? Is it Christ's finished work? Is it your good morality? What do you trust in to be at peace with God daily in your life, to experience his rest right now? Do you try to figure out just how some issue can work out? Or when you're stumped, can you actually trust God? Trust in Christ's heart for you and enter his rest. Remember his invitation, come to me. All of you who need rest, I am gentle and lowly. We need this super sharp, double-edged sword of the word so that we can really see our own heart. Remember Jeremiah 17, I'm sure we've all heard this verse. The heart is deceitful, more so than anything else, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the Lord says, I search the heart, I test the mind we can use the scripture to consider our, all, our own heart. So the word of God, all four things on my list, is your tool to reveal your heart, to reveal the real you. All facades aside, what you should really be seeing in the mirror, who you are when no one is looking, that's your heart. Spirit in our passage, wind, breath, spiritual, it's, it's a little bit outside ourselves when you, you try to divided a little bit. It's that part of the, our life that has been made alive in Christ. My mom passed away a year and a half ago. I love the word realm. She left this realm, and she is now in the realm of daylight all the time, right, present with God. If you've got half hour, sometimes those of us that were there when she actually passed at home, it was a marvelous experience to see someone know the Lord to, to move into his, his presence. But you know what? To a certain degree right now, you and I can enter that rest because of the Holy Spirit that's in us. Because God has made us alive spiritually, we can rest in that spiritual dimension even though we are not there yet. Whole. Oh. Our text says that the Word of God divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So our text says the Word of God divides, helps us to distinguish between these things. Okay, let's talk about the body just a little bit. The Word of God teaches us to distinguish the innermost parts of our soul and spirit and also teaches us to distinguish between our hearts, our true selves, and our bodies. We'll look at that distinction in just a minute with uh, an example. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is able to separate this for us. You might read Psalm 139 this afternoon, and it'll give you a little uh, better insight on that. But this is the way I understand it, and I've certainly not arrived. But with my limited understanding, it has helped me immensely to decipher my thoughts and intentions when I try to distinguish the very parts of my being. To separate those parts out, it helps me to know what is sin and what is not, to experience true guilt when I need to, and to reject false guilt. So I would like to walk us through one example, maybe two in Scripture, to share with you how dividing the Word of God helps us to understand ourselves. Now, Romans 6, 7, and 8 probably the most important verses for me in all of the Bible. It was a lot easier to memorize when I was younger. At one time, I had all of those verses memorized. I still have a good bit of it. But I listen to Romans 6, 7, and 8 often, at least once a week, sometimes multiple times a week. We have so many things at our disposal. You can just put your phone onto your speaker or your headset, and you can listen. We need to do it. But Romans 6 explains that we are no longer related to sin like we used to be before Christ. We've been baptized into his death. The penalty for sin is no longer ours to bear. Christ took our sin upon himself on the cross. We are told in Romans 6 that the old man has been made powerless. We are made new in Christ. Our sin nature is not gone, though. But the penalty has been paid, and we are now free as it relates to the law's requirement. We don't have to pay the debt, it's fully satisfied. Often in Romans, it uses the word to know or knowing this. So knowing that we have been declared righteous, we should consider ourselves to be dead to sin. That's verse 11 of chapter six. It's the first exhortation in the whole book of Romans. Then it goes on, we're supposed to present our members parts of our immaterial and physical selves to God as those alive from the dead. So, because of God declaring us righteous and securing our future heavenly rest, and in order to give us rest right now in the midst of our storms, Paul thanks God for this in verse 17. I love this verse. Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, the real being, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So now I walk in the Spirit. There's a governor in me at work. Then in the second half of chapter 7, we have Paul's conflict with the two natures. And I believe that Paul is describing himself here as a mature believer. Not that he didn't have times of great victory, but he's realistically sharing his struggle with us that each of us have. Verse 21, he summarizes the struggle. And he says, I find then the principle that evil is present within me, within me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, my heart, the real person that I am. But I see a different law in the members of my body, my brain, waging war against the law of my mind, again, heart, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. See how Paul is kind of dividing himself, helping to understand the struggle that he has. Then we have chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. That therefore is referring to all of the book of Romans so far. But what an awesome! we could spend a whole hour, we won't, on the, that verse. It's just so awesome. But then he goes on to say that we walk according to the Spirit, if the Spirit actually lives in us. We have that governor, the Spirit. Verse 9 of chapter 8, he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but you, my audience, are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, because of sin is dying, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you right now. So we can have that life alive to the Spirit right now and enter that rest. Understanding the various parts of how we're made and how we are now in Christ really helps put in perspective our problem with sin, with our old nature. One more example from Scripture, James 1.13. He says, Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when He is carried away and enticed by His own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So, did you know that you can be enticed and carried away by your sinful nature, Your, your human sinful nature, and yet you haven't sinned yet? You've been enticed? and carried away. We all know when we cross that line and actually sin outwardly or in our minds. However, the principle, the scriptural principle, is that temptation is not, in and of itself, sin, and we can be carried away and enticed because of our sinful nature. Learning to let scripture divide the immaterial and material parts of me really helps me to know who I am in Christ and who I am as a fallen human being who has been declared righteous because of Christ. How many of you go to counseling? Oh, don't answer that. How many think your spouse or your friends, your parents, your kids should go to counseling? Please don't answer that. Most of us could probably benefit from a qualified biblical counselor. Well, I can refer you to the perfect counselor, Think about this for a minute. You come to me and you say, Gordon, I've got this really complicated problem, and I need a special counselor. My response to you is, I know of a counselor that knows exactly what your issue is and how it came to be. He knows every detail, like what part of the problem originates from the personality you were born with, and what part is your parents' fault. We all know it's the parents' fault. And what part of your problem is because of your own rebellion? Wouldn't just the thought of such a counselor you could go see encourage you? And it encourages me more than you can imagine. Computers are designed after our brains. There's on-off switches programmed to do what we ask of them. We all know that a virus can create disastrous havoc in our computers, but wrong ways of thinking can do the same in our flesh, in our brains. Well, God the Father, He is the perfect counselor, and He's called Wonderful Counselor. He knows every single electrical impulse that has ever been made in your brain. He actually does know what part genetics played regarding your problems. He knows what part the environment played, and He knows how your fleshly desires played in. <laughs> and He still loves you and wants you intimately. Remember His invitation come to me. I'm gentle power under control, and I'm lowly. So how can we work diligently to enter his rest? How can we stop striving to save ourselves? How can we rest in his unchanging love for us and his acceptance in spite of everything? How can we work diligently to please him and out of gratitude for his saving grace and mercy? The answer, live in God's word, in the creation the written word, the life of Jesus when he was on earth, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, alive in you today. Remember, the fear of the Lord is clean, pure, enduring forever, and blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Seeing God, you're going to have that rest. So my goal today was that you might experience the rest that Jesus offers right now, for you today. The rest is Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit. I leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis. It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible read in the right spirit, fearing him, and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, perfect counselor, how we thank you for Psalm 139, that you know everything about us, how we thank you for your invitation invitation to rest, how we thank you for the heart of Jesus, that it is gentle, all power under control, and that it is lowly, welcoming to each one of us. May we enter your rest while we are still here, this side of glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.